Well, let's turn for our uh, second reading, also for our theme and our text, to Matthew chapter 16. And reading from verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples, as Mark says openly, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, or a stumbling block, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man 
is risen from the dead. And particularly uh, tonight, uh, the words at the close of verse 5, where God the Father speaks, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and particularly these words, Hear him, or listen to him. Hear him. Now as we um, began last night, um, we began looking at this uh, great event in the life of Christ that is known as the transfiguration or simply the transformation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our preparatory services we are essentially uh, ascending the mount along with Christ Peter, James and John and we saw last night why just those three and I would like uh, with you, uh, with God's help to spend some time on the top of the mountain uh, particularly on Saturday and on the Sabbath morning and then God willing on Sunday night and on Monday night we will descend the mountain with them as the Lord helps us in all these things. Now we're looking, uh, you'll remember, at the Transfiguration as an answer to prayer. That is the best way, I think, to approach it and to understand it. It's an answer to the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. By that I don't mean that he prayed to be transfigured, we shouldn't understand that to be the case, but that the transfiguration was God's answer to his prayer nonetheless. And if you remember from last night, the prayer that Christ offered was essentially twofold. First of all, there was a prayer for himself. And that prayer had to do very much with the fact that he was now consecrating himself on this mountain for the final leg of his ministry, the final journey to Jerusalem, where he was, as he says himself, to suffer and to die. He had to set his face to it. As I mentioned last night, when you have a difficult thing like that to do, you need to do precisely that. You've got to consecrate yourself and to set your face towards it. And conscious as he is of the darkness of Calvary's shadow just beginning to fall upon him, and the reason it's falling upon him now is because he is now beginning to teach about his own suffering and death. That was not a part of his teaching before now, but now it is. So conscious of the shadow of Calvary, he prays for strength and encouragement, or as I put it last night, just a little taste of the joy that was to be set before him, that that would encourage him on his way. We pray for such things ourselves, and in the grace and kindness of God he gives us such things himself, uh, such things himself. And here O Lord is praying just for that. But there is also a prayer for his disciples, and that's really what we looked at last night. He is praying that 
they would go back to the teachable spirit and the humble spirit, the childlike spirit that they had during the first half of the ministry. That teachable, humble, childlike spirit is a spirit that they are now losing. And we saw last night how they were losing it. Because for the first time they are resisting the teaching that the Lord is giving them. And we saw that the reason for that lay fundamentally in their own pride. Yes, I'm very conscious that they didn't like the teaching that they received because they didn't like to hear of the suffering and death of the Lord. He began to teach these things openly, making plain that they were to be literally understood. He was going to literally suffer. He was going to literally die. They found that hard to accept. And they didn't agree that that was the teaching of Moses or the teaching of the great prophets. That was not their understanding. That was not what they had been taught. And therefore, Peter rather violently took him aside and astonishingly rebuked him. We saw too, however, that the Lord rebuked his rebuke. And he did so very loudly and he did so very publicly calling Peter Satan and telling Peter to get behind him to the place of the disciple and not to be trying to dictate to him or to lead him. Instead of being a foundation stone in the temple of his church, he was being a stumbling stone to himself and, of course, in danger of being that to the rest of the disciples too. And we saw how we can easily trip others up. And I think it's fair to say that the strength of the Lord's rebuke here is the best indicator of the spirit that Peter was in. I mean, if Peter was just full of compassion and sympathy and saying, Lord, I don't want this to happen to you, the Lord's response would have been very, very different. But, but the force, the sheer power of our Lord's response tells us that Peter was of a very different mind dictating matters, effectively saying that his and his brethren's understanding of Scripture was actually better than the Lord's. And that's not as rare as we would like to think. Now, friends, it's one thing uh, to be <coughs> rebuked like Peter was, and the rest of the apostles too, I suppose, ourselves sometimes as well, but it's another thing to accept a rebuke, to take it in the way that we should. David says in the psalm, Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. I shall consider it a precious ointment. That's so you should take a rebuke. Of course, that's a proper way to give one too. But there's a proper way to receive one. And certainly if the Lord ever rebukes us by his word when we're reading it, or by a sermon as it's spoken by his preachers, we should accept that rebuke from the Lord. Let him especially, the righteous man, smite me. It shall a kindness be. But there's every sign in the Gospels that Peter and the apostles did not accept this rebuke that the Lord gave to them. Now, you would have thought that a rebuke like this from the Lord so strongly given would easily be accepted by anyone who received it but that's not the way it was 
And it's not the way it still is either. <coughs> Receiving a rebuke doesn't depend on the strength in which it's given. It depends upon the state of your own heart. And like I say, there's every sign that they did not accept it. I suppose it's hard to believe because Peter is such a, a loving and a loyal person and you would have thought that he would immediately accept it. But Peter could be very determined, very, very determined, very stubborn, even as many of us are determined and stubborn. Uh, let me give you an example of that, just in case you find it difficult to believe that he found it so hard to accept what Christ said to him. Let me give you an example of it. Let me take you to the last night of our Lord's life before his crucifixion, on the night in which he was betrayed. Christ said to them, You will all forsake me. Peter said, Not me. Now you may say, Well, that's acceptable to say uh, just like that in response. The Lord therefore says, Simon, Simon, notice the double emphasis. You're not listening, in other words. Satan has desired all of you tonight to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith tonight would not fail. Peter again says, Not me. Even if all others forsake you, I will not forsake you. To which the Lord comes back again and says, effectively, listen, before the cockerel crows tonight three times, you will deny me three times. Peter again said, not me. At what point does that kind of loyalty and devotion become foolishness, when there is a refusal to accept what the Lord is telling will be the actual case. Instead of going away to pray or to self-examine, there's a, there's a standing on his own strength, on his own loyalty, on who he is, what he is able to do. Others may do that, not me, even though Christ says, you will, you will. So Peter is well able to be taught without learning. Any teacher will tell you that there's a big difference between teaching and learning. And the teaching can be as plain as day, but no learning happen. Here Peter is rebuked, but he doesn't accept it. You see, deep down, in the six days between the rebuke and going up to the mountain to pray, Peter is saying in his heart, I'm still right. I'm still right. The stubbornness and defiance can be in us even without realising it. There are cases of it in the Old Testament that are quite stark. Uh, you remember Jonah, who, who was a rather angry and discontent preacher, um, sent to a place he didn't want to go to, to convert a people that he didn't really want to be converted because of their arrogance and their ruthlessness and their cruelty. And when he preached to them reluctantly, this seems to break all the rules, he preached reluctantly and they were converted. And of course, he was blazing with anger. And he went to sit outside the city, a city that was converted, 
waiting to see that at the end of 40 years, perhaps God would really, in justice, destroy the city after all, because according to Jonah, that's what they deserved. That seems strange to us, but suppose for a minute if someone broke into your house and killed all your family and all your children, and then uh, was converted a few days afterwards, you might not feel just quite so good about it yourself. It's easy to criticise people until we walk in their shoes. But nonetheless, Jonah was angry. And God came near to Jonah and he said to him, as as he was looking down at the city, he said, Jonah, are you right to be angry? What did Jonah say to him? I am right, he says, to be angry, even till I die. That was his response. He knew fine well that the Lord was reasoning with him. That the Lord was questioning him about his attitudes, about his spiritual attitudes, even towards those who were being converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew that fine well, but he said, I am right, he says, to be angry, and right to be angry until I die. In other words, until I die, nothing will reconcile me to the conversion of these men of <clears throat> uh, Thank the Lord, he was wrong in that. He was reconciled to the conversion of the Ninevites. But that's because of the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that shows its graciousness by overcoming such anger and recalcitrance and such kind of stubbornness and enmity as that. I mean, the things God's grace has to get over, even in the hearts of his own people, the things the grace of God has to get over and overcome, not just in others, friends, but in ourselves. And I I firmly believe that for the six days that passed between this rebuke and going up the hill to pray, I believe there was very little said. And certainly nothing asked on the part of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may think that's strange too, but, but there were times when there was quite a lot of silence between the Lord and his disciples. If you read the scriptures carefully, you'll notice that. For example, after the mountain of transfiguration, they travelled the distance down to Capernaum. There wasn't much contact. How do we know? Because when they arrived in Capernaum, the Lord turned to the disciples and he said, What were you discussing on the journey? They, they didn't want to answer. I mean, the Lord knew fine well what they were discussing on the journey, but they didn't want to answer. The reason they didn't want to answer was because they were discussing who was the greatest among them. That had something to do with the fact that the Lord had separated the three from the nine. That the three on the top of the mountain couldn't tell the nine at the foot of the mountain what they had seen and what they had heard. That doesn't matter. They knew fine well that they were discussing things to do with pride and ambition and things of that kind. But there had been no communication between the Saviour and themselves from the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum. When they're left Capernaum were told that as Jesus set out for Jerusalem that the disciples went out behind them they were amazed and they were afraid Mark tells us and they dared not ask him anything a distance and a reserve there's more I could say about that but I'm just not going to say it just now but I do believe with all my heart that there was the same kind of silence and reserve between the rebuke and the Mount of Transfiguration Something had happened. It was quite decisive, really. I mean, 
I don't think the disciples ever listened as well after this as they had before. Not until our Saviour died for them and rose. Uh, not, not until they were awoken, spiritually roused from their slumbers. There was a kind of declension in them that culminated in forsaking him and fleeing on that terrible night when he was betrayed. So there was that reserve. And Peter deep down and probably the rest too thinks that their interpretation of scripture is right. Now, in our Lord's mind and heart, this calls for prayer. See, there are some things the Lord does himself. There are other things that he must do through prayer, from the Father, through the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember that. For example, uh, last night, uh, we saw an example of that. Uh, after a, a year and a half of teaching about the kingdom of God and about who he is himself and how you get into the kingdom of God and how you live in the kingdom of God, the ethic of the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount, he says, who do you say I am? Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now isn't that an interesting thing? Even though he had taught the truth himself, it was the Father, presumably through the Holy Spirit, who enlightened the mind of Peter in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Not Jesus Christ himself. He taught the word, but the enlightenment came from the Spirit. That, of course, tells us that our Lord is praying for this enlightenment to come upon Peter. It comes from the Father. It is my Father who is in heaven who has shown you these things. Now, the same happens here in connection with the Mount of Transfiguration. Our Lord recognises that there is a, a critical point in proceedings, a teaching that they are not accepting. And he knows that as they walk behind him on the way to the mountain, that there's a resistance. And it needs to be broken. And it needs to be broken by prayer. And that's why, as Luke tells us, he ascends the mountain to pray. He ascends the mountain to pray. For himself, yes, as we'll see, God willing, especially on the Sabbath, but for the disciples too. And as night falls, they begin to pray. You'll remember from last night, it's a, it's a night of prayer they're going for, at Christ's command. Only a night of prayer will put this right, or at least to some extent, anyway. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that as this evening of prayer begins, they tell us that Christ was transfigured before them. Now, reading these words on their own, you would get the impression that the transfiguration happened while they were awake, the disciples, and that they saw it happening. But Luke isn't general like that, he's far more specific. 
Luke tells us that at the very point at which Christ was transfigured, the disciples were actually asleep. And Luke tells us too that when they awoke, they became aware of a, a strange light, a glory, but they awoke with difficulty because Luke tells us that their eyes were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw Christ, glorious, and of course, Moses and Elijah with him. Now, obviously, the sleep was, as the scripture would say, a slumber. And there's more to their sleep than meets the eye. Now, I'm saying that because what meets the eye or what strikes you on the page or what may seem obvious is that they were tired because it was night time. And what else would you normally do at night time but sleep? Well, be this as it may, there are two things, friends, that we need to remember. The first thing is that on this particular evening, prayer was their duty. It wasn't their choice. Sometimes we can choose to pray at night. We may feel a call to pray at night, but for them it was definitely their calling. Christ had dedicated this night on a mountaintop to prayer, and just as he called for in Gethsemane, he wanted these three to watch and to pray with him. It was their business, and it was their labour. So, to sleep is a dereliction of duty. There are times when we're supposed to sleep and not to pray. It's important to remember that as well, by the way. I'll say more about that on Monday evening, God will. Times when it's important to sleep and not to pray. Other times when it's important to pray and not to sleep. For example, when God calls us publicly to a prayer meeting, we don't fall asleep because it is a time for prayer. And it doesn't matter here if it's 2 a.m. in the morning. It's a time to pray. The second thing to remember is that they had an example with them, Peter, James and John. A good example and a blessed example to follow. That's the Lord himself who wasn't falling asleep. And if anyone had a reason to fall asleep, it is the Lord. After all, he was tired too. Was anyone ever as tired as the Lord? You remember just in, over the last few Sabbaths when we were thinking of the Lord after ministering in Judea, he travelled north through Samaria. And you'll remember how he stopped at the well where he was to meet the woman. We're told that the disciples carried on for supplies to get food. But the Lord sat wearily in the Greek, exhausted at the well. And we're told that he sat thus at the well. The thus is a reference to the exhausted state in which he sat. He was slumped there. Why? Was he weaker than the disciples? Was he of a, a less strong physical constitution? Did he have less stamina or something to that effect? You remember the other occasion when they crossed the lake in a boat after another heavy day's ministry? They were rowing the boat and he was fast asleep in the stern. That wasn't some kind of trick or charade. It was a genuine sleep, out of genuine tiredness and genuine exhaustion. Why was it? 
Well, friends, it's because of the hardness of his work. It's because of the enmity to it. It's because of the power of the devil at work almost constantly in his life. It's because of his sheer grief. The grief that he bore in his holiness of nature, surrounded by evil and unbelief on all sides. These things exhaust a person. Our Lord was far more weary than these three men whom he took on top of the mountain with him. But he didn't sleep, not when it was his call to prayer. And when he knew that prayer was the only answer to the predicament in the heart of Peter and James and John especially, a predicament which was necessary to heal and to deal with before it completely spread and festered in the hearts of the other nine apostles. Prayer was the answer. Prayer was the calling. There was no place for sleep. Except there was, sadly, in the experience of Peter and James and John. And I think in that connection, it is important to make a reference to Gethsemane and the constant references to sleep. You, you must have noticed it. I'm sure you've noticed it before. But even as we were reading it, I tried more or less to emphasize it. It's nothing but sleep all the time. He left the nine in the garden perimeter to pray. He took the three with him to watch and pray with him. And in that interval, he removed himself a stone's throw still essentially within sight, certainly within earshot, falling face down on the ground and pleading with his father that the cup, which he now sees so clearly, would be taken away from. And he asked Peter and James and John, for one hour, for one hour, could you give an hour? Could you give an hour tonight to the Lord in prayer? Could I? Three times he comes back and finds them fast asleep. Three times. You would have expected, having been roused once, that the sheer shame even of being roused and having to be roused once would keep them awake for the rest of the duration. No. A second time he comes back and they're still asleep. And the third time he comes back and they are asleep again. What, he says, could you not watch with me one hour? No, they couldn't. Why not? Because things weren't right in here. Things weren't right in here. It explains why they took so little in when Christ was speaking. Why their memory wasn't so retentive. Why their courage failed when a, when a small group of soldiers appeared along with a few officials just scattered. Peter puts up a little show of resistance with a sword, but it's all gone. Why, why is it all gone? Because something's not right in here. And the sleep is symbolizing that. I mean, it's a real sleep. It's a physical sleep. Don't get me wrong, but it's symbolic of what's inside. You'll remember over the last... Um, a good few weeks on, on the, at the prayer meeting we were considering Song of Solomon chapter 5 where the church sleeps but her heart is awakening her saviour is coming to her knocking her door but she says I've, I've changed my, my clothes so how can I put them on again 
I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? And she can't get up to open the door to let her beloved in. Poor excuses. Just lazy and sleepy. A lazy and sleepy church. And when we were looking at that, I I cross-referred a lot to Gethsemane. Well, you can cross-refer to, I'm afraid, the Mount of Transfiguration too, because they're fast asleep. And when the Transfiguration begins to happen, something they're supposed to see, they're all asleep. When they should be praying. Are you asleep when you should pray? Now, in a way, it's no surprise. And it's no surprise because of what's going on in their hearts. Pride. Not listening. Knowing best. One of the Puritans famously said that sin and prayer just don't get along. Either your sin will banish prayer out of your life, or else prayer will banish sin out of your life. And how true is that? And to some extent you know it. To some extent you know it. They don't get along sin and prayer. And either prayer will push sin out, or else sin will push prayer out. And Peter and the rest are in a place where sin is pushing prayer out. They cannot pray when they are called to pray. Prayer and pride, these are two Ps you'll never find in the same poem. The heart needs to be humbled to pray. And thank God he'll see to it one way or another that we are humbled. There's a way in which, there's a very real way in which uh, our prayer life is a barometer of your entire spiritual life. Or if you like, it's like the canary in the mine. I'm sure you know where that phrase comes from. The miners long ago used to take a canary down. Some of the gases down there were lethal. They couldn't be smelt. It was too late. You were overcome by them. So they would take down the canary. The canary's making a noise all the time. When the canary stops making a noise, there's a problem. And they need to get out of the mine. Prayer is the canary in the mine. When the prayer stops, it's telling you everything's wrong. Whether you realise it or not, If you're not praying, there's a whole lot wrong in your life, and a lot of it will root in pride. Now, these days, as we not just ascend the Mount of Transfiguration, but as we ascend the Mount of Ordinance and the Mount of Communion, it's a time to look within for these things. Am I praying? Are are my graces in activity? Am I growing? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I coming to Christ as someone who is moving forward and in the right direction? Are my views of him increasing? Am I more grateful, more thankful? Am I more prayerful? Am I more gracious, more kind? Am I more ready to forgive? Well, a quick check is your prayer life. It is the canary in the mine. And here they do fall asleep. Now, Maybe you 
Maybe you're surprised and maybe even disbelieving that the apostles could slip like that and decline in their spiritual life and in their prayer life while the Lord is actually with them. Maybe you say, well, surely that's absolutely impossible. But why should that? Why should that be so? Why should that be so? Is it any more surprising that you should decline spiritually and in your prayer life when the Holy Spirit is within you? Is that not even more surprising? Christ said that when he would go away it would be to our advantage because he would send another comforter. He is a comforter. He would send another comforter who would dwell within us. Now, if it's amazing that they could decline when there was a comforter with them, is it not more amazing that we should decline when there is a comforter within us? There was nothing magic like that about the personal presence of the Lord. They still had their duty to be disciples, to pray, to watch, to be vigilant. It's not as though there was an automatic transmission from him to them that kept them doing these things. No, he taught them how to pray and how to be dependent. And the sleep tells us that even though the Lord rebuked him six days before, it hadn't worked. If a rebuke works, we pray. Peter is not praying. But thankfully, friends, Peter, James and John are not the only ones praying on the mountaintop. Christ is praying on the mountaintop too. And in that way, the, the one who's with them is the one who's praying for them. They don't have the sense, really, in a way to, to pray Maybe they're still not even sure what exactly they're supposed to be praying for that night. I don't know. Nobody can know the extent to which the Lord has laid that in their hearts. Maybe he wants them to find that out in an evening prayer before the Lord. Sometimes that's the way it works. Sometimes we don't know what it is that we should ask for. But we consecrate ourselves to God that he would show us what to ask for. What is the defect? What is the problem? What is it that I must put right and how am I to go? But one thing we know for sure is that that night the Lord did not sleep and he did not sleep because he was praying for them. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of the night when they went out on their own in the boat and a furious storm arose. And uh, it was a storm that was threatening to take their lives. They were making no progress in the ship at all. But you'll remember on that evening that the Lord had gone out to a mountain apart that night to pray. And the scriptures tell us, scriptures tell us that that evening when he was in prayer, that night when he was in prayer, even into the second and third watches of the night, into the small hours of the morning, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, we're told that he saw them. Saw them? Yes, spiritually he saw them. Spiritually he knew their difficulty. And he was praying for them. They are not knowing that. But the fact of the matter is that he was. 
and their lives depended on that. Even there, his intercession saved them. And in the incident I referred to just a few moments ago, on the last night of his life when he says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Well, how true was that? At the very moment Peter was denying our Saviour with oaths and curses, underneath there was an intercession. And how precious that intercession was. Where would Peter have gone that night without that intercession? The intercession of a man that he was denying with oaths and curses. That's love for you. That's kindness for you. That's Christian grace. That's the grace of God. I am praying for you, even when you are denying me, that your faith would not fail. How wonderful a thing to be inside Christ's intercession, I think I said that perhaps last night. How wonderful a thing it is. When we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which can't be uttered. And even when we do know what we are praying for, our Lord himself takes our intercessions in all their poverty, in all their poverty and even in their defilement and he carries them and he presents them in his own blood. Wonderful thing. It's not just Peter, James and John on the mountain top. Christ's on the mountain. Peter doesn't have the sense or the strength to pray. James and John don't have the strength or the wisdom to pray and they don't know what to pray for but the Lord does. And that's why God comes and he comes with the transfiguration. He comes because God cannot and will not refuse a single request that comes from his son. Psalm 21. Not a single request. And when God asks for something to speak to these disciples, well, God sends something quite remarkable. He begins to answer this prayer with the event that is known as the Transfiguration. Now, we don't have time tonight to go very far into this, but let me just begin it with you for just for a few moments anyway. Suddenly, our Lord is physically transformed. This is quite unique. Nothing like it happened before. Nothing like it happened afterwards. In some respects, it's the most wonderful thing in his ministry. He becomes visibly glorious. Remember, it's against the backdrop of a dark night sky. We're told that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became so bright and white that the Gospels say that no launderer could possibly come near the whiteness that just radiated from his clothing. Clearly it's not a light simply, it is a glory. John tells us that. Both John and Peter refer to the transfiguration in their writings. John tells us that we beheld his glory. A glory that of course is veiled normally in his humiliation, but we saw it. We saw it. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son, <coughs> full of grace and truth. They saw a glory. Now the glory was twofold. 
First of all, it's a glory that clearly revealed his identity. It was most emphatically a divine glory. There was no mistaking that the person who carried this glory was God. <clears throat> to remove any doubt or uncertainty, when the Father himself comes onto the mountain top, he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And they understood it was a divine glory. But it's also a glory that was to be bestowed on the Saviour formally when he would finish his work as a mediator. When he would be visibly crowned with glory and honour. And when God declares to the whole assembled universe that this Jesus is Lord even to his own glory and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on that day that Jesus is Jehovah and that the glory that they see is the glory of Jehovah to the glory of God the Father. So it is a glory that clearly spoke of divinity and a glory that spoke of triumph. Triumph as a God-man. Triumph as a mediator. Now, both these things are not seen in his humiliation. The identity of this man as the Son of God is veiled. You look at him, no form or comeliness that you should desire, a root out of dry ground, a man in appearance as other men. And as for the glory of a prophet, priest and king, the glory of a mediator accomplishing God's work, that's for the future. That's the joy that is set before him. It's not a glory that's to be lavished upon him here on this earth, not till his work is finished. Yes, it's something the Lord looks forward to because the scriptures tell us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. But he had to look forward to it. He believed it would come by faith. He expected it would become, it would come in hope But suddenly, just for a brief time, it's granted to him. Just for a brief moment of time, God gives it to him. Himself, redeemed saints, and the Father, surrounded in heavenly glory, just for a time. It's, it's fitting that that should be so. Who would grudge the Saviour that? When he, when he begins to preach on a theme, it falls on him heavenly, heavily. And uh, we can well understand, with the devil coming into it, how crippled he sometimes feels and how weak he sometimes feels. And he asks for God to help him when oh, God helps him. He gives him a foretaste of the joy that is very definitely set before him. Now, on the Lord's Day, we're going to see how that spoke to him, how Moses and Elijah spoke to him, how everything spoke to him. But can I say something in the time that's just left me, not long, about what it actually said to Peter, James and John? They opened their eyes. Luke says, at last they were fully awake and they saw him. And they saw Moses. And they saw Elijah. 
In his wisdom, God sent two distinguished visitors down from heaven to stand with the Saviour and to speak with him. Now, I do have a lot to say about Moses and Elijah, which we'll have to wait until the Lord's day because they were especially sent, I suppose, for the Lord himself. But like I said, they were also sent for Peter, James and John. Now, it's difficult for us sometimes to appreciate just how important these men were for Peter, James and John. We have people in our own lives, in our own culture, in our own histories that we idolise and build up. I shouldn't say idolise, but we lionise and we build up and make a lot of them. Well, they were the same, and very often for good reasons. But, but who was like Moses, for example? The leader of the nation, the one who spoke to God. This was the man who was 40 days and 40 nights on a mountaintop in the presence of God. We're told in the Old Testament that there was no prophet like him who spoke to God face to face on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, so much so that he had his own transfiguration. You'll remember that his skin shone after that encounter and shone to such a degree that he actually had to veil his face when he communicated the law to Israel. They couldn't look at it because of the divine glory that still radiated from his face after being 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on the mountain. He was transfigured. Who was like Moses? And Elijah too, who took on a nation and a depraved king and a depraved queen and slew the prophets of Baal. This was the man who, in some senses, single-handedly turned things around And the man that the prophet said would actually come back before the Messiah would come, Elijah would return. And he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers in a powerful ministry of repentance, the kind that he exercised before when he was on this earth, before he was wonderfully raised into heaven. Two great men of faith. And God says to them, go down, go back to the earth and stand beside my son and stand beside him and speak to him about the sufferings and the death that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. Let me note just three things quickly about them. First of all, their appearance. Peter, James and John noticed that they appeared in glory. Not their own. The glory in which they appeared was the glory that emanated from the sun. That's the glory, after all, that is the light of heaven. Tonight, even as we speak, there's no sun in heaven. There's no moon. There's an emanation from from the mediator that illuminates the whole cosmos. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And these men are aware that whatever glory Moses and Elijah possess, it's reflective of him. He is the source. They bask in it. They live in it. They reflect it. It originates with him, not with them. He's the source and the benefactor. They are the recipients and the beneficiaries of it. There's their appearance. Then again, there's their conversation. Now, I don't think I'll come to this tomorrow, God willing. I don't think they understood much of the conversation. 
But the Bible tells us quite clearly that they were speaking about the death and sufferings of our Lord. They spoke with him on that point. As someone who knew, someone of whom they could still learn, they might not be willing to receive it. Moses was willing to receive it, and Elijah was willing to receive it. And there could be no doubt in Peter and James and John's minds that whatever Christ was saying, he was on the same page as Moses and Elijah. They're the ones on the wrong page. And again, as well as their appearance and conversation, there's last of all their disappearance. Amazingly, they're hardly awake and they've hardly listened and they've hardly discerned who these two people are when they both begin to fade from view. And as they fade from view, there's another cloud and another distinctive glory and this time it's the Father's glory. He identifies his son, this is my beloved son, and hear ye him. I have sent many prophets, maybe none as great as Moses and Elijah, but in this last days I am speaking by my son. Peter, James and John knew their Bibles. They knew in Deuteronomy that Moses, um, when he saw... Um, if you read Deuteronomy 18, it's either Deuteronomy 18.15 or 15.18. I can't remember which one it is. But if you read, you'll notice that he's looking forward and he's seeing a day when Israel are going to fall away. But God gives him encouragement and Moses shares that encouragement with the people. He says that a day will come, he says, when God will raise a prophet like me. Like me. And him you will here. Now, that's exactly what God is referring to here. In other words, Peter, James and John, you think you know Moses, you think you know Elijah, you think you understand the Bible. Well, this is the one of whom Moses spoke. The one that was to be listened to. Well, listen to him. And listen to him properly. In fact, the passage in Deuteronomy says that if if they don't listen to him, they will perish. And I'm sure that wasn't lost on Peter, James and John. When the father says, listen to him, if you don't listen, you'll perish. You carry on with your own way of living and you'll perish. But learn to listen to my son and you will surely live. Hear him when he speaks of suffering and death, because I've put these words in his mouth. Hear him when he interprets Moses and the prophets because he gave them the word in the first place and his interpretation of it is true. And hear him also when he says that you must deny yourself as we read there. You must take up your cross and follow him. He's going to suffer and he's going to die and you will have to learn too, in a spiritual sense, to lay down your life for him and to die daily for him. You must learn to listen to him when he says all that too. And when we come to the Lord's table, we must do it as a people who are listening to the Saviour. Now last night, I mentioned ways in which we are not as attentive as we could be. Ways in which we are taking the Lord to the side and saying, this is not actually the case. 
this is not how I'm supposed to live, or it's not necessary to keep this commandment, or this commandment is a secondary matter that's not really that important. The Lord's table is a time for rededication. It is a time for reconsecration. One of the words used to describe it is sacramentum, a Latin word for oath, the oath of allegiance that the Roman soldier took to his emperor. It is our sacramentum, it is our sacrament, it is our oath of allegiance, where we say, we are yours, we hear your voice, we follow your commandments, and if in anything we've been negligent, Lord have mercy upon us, and help us to step out from the table, or to come down from the Mount of Ordinance, renewed, stronger, more equipped, more wholehearted, more thankful, for you, O Lord, and our Saviour. And when the Lord says to us tonight, hear him, it's not just Moses and Elijah that, that we need to read in the light of Christ, it's everybody else too. I, I did mention last night that there's this terrible tendency in, in churches to follow people, to make a lot of people, so much so that even when they do something bad, you do something bad with them. They, they fall away from a doctrine or they, they fall away in their worship and say, oh, well, if they fall away in their worship, well, we can do the same. Who says? Who says? Who is it that's so good and so worthy that you're to follow him unreservedly in everything that he says or does? Just one. And he's up there and he speaks in this precious word. And tonight, if we're to cleanse ourselves and purge ourselves before the table, let's purge ourselves of these voices. Let's rededicate ourselves to the Word of God. Let Him speak to you. You listen to Him. Let Him illuminate your path. Let Him guide you. And you'll know the closeness and the blessing of being hand in hand with our Saviour. I've more to say on this, obviously. Let's just leave it there and come back to it tomorrow with God's help. Let's stand and call on the name of God in prayer. Eternal God, uh, how blessed the one who still intercedes and always lives uh, to make intercession for us. There are many things for which we need to be sorrowful and of which we need to repent. And we do so tonight even confessing our sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. Lord, lead us, we pray, as we come to consider these matters more fully, especially your dealings with our Saviour himself on the mountain top. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Our um, closing singing is in Psalm 63. I should have mentioned in the intimations that you're all uh, warmly, I, we circulated that on the WhatsApp messages anyway, but you're all warmly welcome to the 
uh, months for a time of fellowship afterwards. Uh, Psalm 63 from the beginning of the psalm. Lord, thee my God, I'll early seek. My soul doth thirst for thee. My flesh longs in a dry, parched land wherein no waters be. And this is what we want to see, that I thy power may behold and the brightness of thy face as I have seen thee heretofore within thy holy place. We want something back that we had because better is thy love than life. Therefore my lips thee praise shall give. I in thy name will lift my hands and bless thee while I live. We'll just sing the opening three stanzas. We stand to sing them to God's praise. Lord, my Of the Holy Spirit be with you all.